One of the, the, the more consistent problems that I think plagues the church, and maybe just the church here in North America, is that we as believers can't necessarily find the consistency in our everyday walks with Jesus to experience what the Bible talks about in contentment and joy to any consistent level in our lives. It, it's far too often the story of our life, and, and part of this is always going to be true, that we take one step forward, maybe two steps back in our relationship with Jesus. We take two steps forward, and then maybe three steps back. And sometimes we can feel like we've gone years and we're still, still the same person. And certainly, with grace, that process exists. But if we're not achieving any forward momentum, then we've got to question what's going on in our beliefs and our thoughts about God. Oftentimes, I can hear people say, like, I love Jesus. Um, I just, I just keep finding myself falling back into my old ways and my own self. I love him, but I keep falling short. I, I can't seem to get where I want to go. I know what he wants from me, but I can't seem to do it. But what has always concerned me to some extent in those responses is that we insert ourselves way too often fully in that equation we use the terms me and I far too often in our relationship with God, in our position with God, in our knowledge about God. We talk about ourselves way too much. If we don't come to grips with exactly what God requires of us without adoring and revering the God that accomplishes all of those things for me, then we will live frustrated existences that are built on pursuing self-improvement by effort, where we will have momentary successes only to find them squashed by the mountain of brokenness and lacking that is evident in every one of our lives. And thus we get no momentum because when we get one thing in order, if we can, we then find the very next thing that is wrong with self that needs our attention. You certainly don't find traction there. What Christ's life and his death contends to us is not a vision of perpetual self-improvement. So not what his scripture points us to, but rather through our affection towards him, a desire to die to self-improvement. It is that we understand and take into account all that who God is and all that he has done for me that we would find recovery in what I truly am, to be who God has always created me to be, not through the means of habit, through the means of fixing, but through the device of affection, love, understanding, and dependency and trust in God who is all things and does all things. And so my, time, my aim in our time today is to remind ourselves of who our God is and how unbelievably superior he is to any of our thoughts. We spent a good chunk of our time over the last couple months talking about forgiveness and power, things that are important, but today we need to root ourselves back into who it is that we serve and who it is that has saved us. There is much confusion in our life when we don't let God be God and you and I be you and I. Far too often, we elevate you and I to be something far greater than what we are. If we are to find joy and abundant hope, the more we get our eyes off of our own selves 
and we put them on our creator God, the better chance that we have for transformation in our lives. And conversely, the more that we keep our eyes on ourselves and our own little kingdoms and and not put them on our holy, magnificent God, we will find transformation and change hard to come by. And so we're going to spend some minutes today talking about laying out how awesome and mighty our God really is. One of the most common prefixes that is attached to God is this word holy. If you read scripture, you'll read about a holy God, the the Lord that is holy. Holy simply means to be set apart or separated from what is evil and sinful. God is for forever cut off of anything sinful. There's not an ounce of sin in God. He is pure light. There's not a blotch of darkness in our God. He's purer than anything that we could ever imagine in our life completely without blemish, holy beyond all holiness. And so when we begin to think about the attributes of God, that he's all-knowing, that he's all-powerful, that he's all-present, that he's immutable, which means he doesn't change, we also have to factor in the fact that he's holy in all of those things, that God's power is all-sufficient and holy, that he's pure in knowledge and understanding, we have to take into, the fact, into account that he's holy in all of those things. And the reality is that that is far outside of our ability to understand at times. I just want you to consider this. Like, God is outside of time and space. Meaning this, is that he already knows your tomorrows. But even more than that, that is where he is. He's there in your tomorrow. He's not just limited to what is known from your past and your yesterdays. He is in your yesterdays, but he's also in your tomorrows, and he's here today, and he's there all at the same time. Completely sufficient in every time span in our life. And so you've got a a God that is forever present. You have a God that is all-knowing. You've got a God that is all-powerful. But here's the thing. It's not like golf where God picks and chooses the club that he's going to handle the situation is with. He doesn't overlook the scenarios in life and say, you know what I need here? I need some more power. I'm going to survey this situation. I need some omniscience right now. No, God is all of those things, all at once, ever-present, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-holy. And so when we say that God just simply needs to be God, we need to revere him in a larger sense. We need to have awe of the might and the size of our God. And we're going to do that today by looking in just a few areas. Yes, spectacularly. (laughs) So I want to start today by looking in the the book of Psalms. We're going to see God being God in creation today. And so we're going to read read this in Psalm 33. It says this, For the word of the Lord is upright, and his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the water of the sea as it heaps. He puts the depths in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Almost every biblical writer reminds us that our God is a creator God. 
And in this psalm, we are reminded of God being God in creation. Because look, all you need in this earth is for it to rotate fractionally slower or faster, and none of you are here. All that we need is for the sun to be a little bit hotter or a little bit colder, and none of us are here. There are literally trillions of things that are happening in this moment to keep this earth and its people alive. God being God shows his might, his presence, his wisdom, his perfection in the fact that it's happening now. We can go to Psalm 8 where David says, Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name. And he says, look at the stars in the heavens. Do you know how those stars got there? Because God uttered words and they were created. And it wasn't laborious for him. God didn't have to take a nap after he created the stars. He exhaled and the universe expanded in an instant. And it's still expanding today. That's God being God. God gets to be God in creation. In the second place that we see God being God is providence. Providence is the power and the presence and the wisdom of God working itself out in the details of our lives to reveal his deep affection and love for us. Think about the stories of your life and all the details that went into you being where you are today. I, I think of how I met my wife. It started with going to college. I, I wanted to go to college. There is no rhyme or reason that I picked Ball State University. No rhyme or reason. I have no idea what lured me there, but it was the only school that I wanted to go to. Go to. I love sports. Ball State is terrible in sports. Sorry. Terrible. I love Jesus. Ball State loves lots of things other than Jesus. I took one college placement test, and it was enough to get me into Ball State, and so I stopped. Why my parents allowed me to go to Ball State is beyond my mind. I'm the first person that left our home to go to college. And then you consider my wife, who was born in Cincinnati, moved to Lansing, Michigan, then to West Virginia, and then when she was in high school, she's in Fort Wayne, and then she goes to Ball State, lives in my dorm hall, builds friends that I become friends with. It's crazy the amount of decisions that weren't made by me that led to me being here today. Let's look at it in a biblical thought. If we look in Acts 17, Paul writes this. He said, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Paul is in Athens, and he is preaching the gospel in the midst of an unbelieving nation. And he is telling them that God has picked time and boundaries for you and I to dwell in for God's purposes to be played out. I know that there are many of you in here that think you were born in the wrong generation. That if I lived in the little house on the prairie, I'd nail that thing. Today, not so much. But listen, the Lord has picked your time, your boundary, your place on purpose so that you might find God 
who is not far from you, and that he can carry out his purposes in you. And listen, none of it was hard for him. None of that was hard for him. It was easy for God. God is aware of every moment and how every moment affects future moments. God knows that a moment today and what it's going to do centuries from now. He knows the story. Is he joyful about your trials and your struggle and your pain? No, he's not. But he is above all of it. And he is working faithfully to redeem as many possible. He is long during and suffering in our sin towards him. And he will, when the time is right, come from the sky, when all of his plans are worked out, judge the earth and establish his beautiful everlasting kingdom. And not only is God God over creation, but God is the God over nature itself. There are great natural laws that govern this universe. Many would believe this. I would think all would believe this, that it's impossible to create something out of nothing. Meaning this, you can't have nothing and say elephant, and an elephant shows up. But that's exactly what happened in creation. Something was produced from nothing. Yet, there are people who recognize this universal truth that something cannot come from nothing, and they see creation that cries out that there is a creator God, yet they refuse to submit to the God of the Bible, but they become a deist, meaning they believe in God, an impersonal God, a creator God that started the engine and set it on cruise control, and now God is up somewhere watching this as entertainment. But listen, we're not deist as Christians. We believe that God still acts in creation today. And we can look to Matthew 8. It's recorded of Jesus' story. It says, in a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waters, but he was asleep. That was Jesus. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the seas, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and seas obey him? This is God being God in nature. Look, I've yelled at storms. They've never listened to me. Jesus cursed a fig tree, and it died. There was a man named Lazarus that died, and Jesus said, no. And do you know how he did it? He said, hey, Lazarus, get up. A man died, and Jesus said, nope, not on my watch today. And so God gets to be God over nature. Although he's created and established all the laws of nature, he can evade it, he can break it anytime he chooses, and we often see that. We call them miracles. Then let's look at God being God over the reign of man. We can look back to the story of Exodus that's found in the book of Exodus where we see our ancient ancestors, the Israelites, held captive in Egypt under the oppressive Pharaoh. Egypt at this time is the epicenter of all that is powerful, all that is good, all that is ingenuitive in society. I don't even know if that's a word. I'm making that up today. Egypt would have been the envy of the world for their technology, for their power, for their buildings, for their structure, for their laws but they were keeping God's people enslaved. And so God sends Moses. 
Moses goes to Pharaoh and says what? He says, let my people go. Pharaoh refuses. God sends plagues after plagues, destruction. Pharaoh still refuses. And the word says that God had hardened Pharaoh's heart. Meaning this, no matter what God did in displaying his power and his majesty, Pharaoh would never come to surrender or to believe in God. And we might ask, why? Why would God do that? To remind us, to remind us that the greatest, the best, the most powerful human civilizations in any time or any place are nothing compared to the power and the majesty of our God who holds life and death, who holds breath and life, who holds blessings and curse. Earthly power is fool's gold compared to God's. You've got illustration after illustration and story after story where man thought that they were God's. You've got a guy named Napoleon, a little man, who conquered all of Europe, almost all of Europe, and then he sets his sights on Russia. Conquering Russia would have meant almost two continents were underneath of him. A a man came up to Napoleon and said that man proposes, but God disposes. And do you know what Napoleon said to him? It is I who proposes and disposes. It is I. And what does history record of Napoleon? It records that his entire army was wiped out in the snowbanks of Russia. God let snow kill that army. You know how small and insignificant snow is? The most well-trained, equipped, ready-to-go army that the world has ever seen to that day died in ditches in Russia. God gets to govern the hearts of men and women. When we sing the song, I am who you say I am, like today, that's not emotional. That's literal. God spoke your purposes into existence. Another place that we see God flexing his godness is over Satan and the demons. You know, Hollywood movies like to make it look like God and goodness are just barely triumphing over Satan and powers of darkness. But that's not the way it looks in Scripture. I mean, in the book of Job, for instance, the devil has to ask God for permission to mess with Job. And God says, you can take all that's in his hand, but don't touch him. There's an interaction between Jesus and Peter right before Jesus denies, or Peter denies Jesus, where, where Jesus said, Satan asked me to sift you like wheat, meaning he wanted to mess with you. But I prayed for you. This isn't dualism. This isn't an epic war between two equally strapped armies that are fighting each other over a course of seven, eight years, or whatever, that may, it could go either way. No. Do you know how the Armageddon ends? Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I am. And it's over. He doesn't even use more than two syllables. I am. And they're squashed. He comes with a sword in his mouth and says, it's me. And they're crushed. So I want you to hear this. Even when the Lord allows the enemy to play, the enemy's game simply serves God's purposes. Here's an example. I mean, Paul, a great example, says it was given to me 
by God an evil spirit that tormented me, a thorn in my flesh, that I might not boast in my exceedingly great revelation. God allows Satan to torment Paul, a thorn in his flesh. And why does he do that? To make Paul all the more reliant on God, which makes his ministry flourish all the more unto God. All of Satan's efforts merely makes Paul a more significant pawn in the hands of a holy God king. And so the reason that we talk about this today is we get consumed with our own agendas, our own kingdoms, our own busyness, our own goings from place to place. How much time do we ever stand in awe of God? How much time do we spend paying attention to how incredible and awesome our God is? I think one of our problems in walking in holiness and having transformed lives is actually believing that God is accomplishing the things that he said he was going to accomplish. And that stems from the fact that we simply don't let there be room for God to be God and for you and I just to be you and I. If God is God and he's majestic, if he is who he says he is, if he has holy power the way that he says he is, if he's holy in wisdom and holy in in knowledge, then when God says in a book like Romans 8 that I'm going to conform you to the image of his son, then you can take that to the bank. You can believe that. If God says like in Ephesians 1 that he's going to make us holy and blameless in his sight, you can believe that God is really going to accomplish that. But where we get in trouble is that we often minimize God to a place that he's on equal level with us. That he's just like you and I. We don't look at him and say, how majestic is your name, how holy you are, how mighty you are, Lord. Where we get in trouble is in us saying, I need to quit doing this, I need to quit doing that, I need to practice this, I need to do that. Look, not that practices and efforts aren't important, I know that the law leads us to flourishing in God's design. But too many of us want to get there without considering the size of our God and what he's done for us. And at the end, all we do is put the pressure on us, a weight on us that simply crushes us. And it forces us to pretend that we're doing this Christian thing. And even more, just give up and walk away. So I just want to convey... Just two quick thoughts to you in this area. Two quick thoughts, and we're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What Paul is saying, that in our becoming like Christ, it has everything to do with beholding his name. Not about you fixing you, but beholding his name. Do you know how you behold something? You gaze upon it. 
You inspect it. You elevate it in your life. We must behold the awesome power and might and size of our God in our lives. Elevate him above anything else in our lives. You're not transformed when you try harder. You're transformed when Jesus is so lovely to you that nothing else matters. Nothing else compares to him. Behold him. Revere him. And then Paul reminds us to look to him. Here in Hebrews, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus Christ doesn't just save us. He perfects us. He sanctifies us. He is the one that changes us into different people out of our affection and reverence for him. He's not the front door to your salvation where you make a one-time commitment to follow Jesus and then I just go. Jesus is the whole deal. And we must fix our eyes on him, the author and the perfecter of our faith, whom for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame. We must point ourselves constantly back to him. And so friends, I speak this today just to simply say to us, we've got to get our eyes off ourselves. Your problems are insignificant when your gaze is focused on the Lord. Doesn't mean that they're not real or they're not painful. But he is sufficient when we gaze upon him. Listen, I, I don't say this to demean us or create lower self-esteem, but in light of who God is, like, we're just not that special. We're just not that important. I love King David writes in Psalm 33, who are you that you would think of me? God, who are you that you would think of me? We must put our focus squarely on God to be awed by who he is, to grow in our affection, not in some end product or end goal, but rather simply on who he is, just all in affection towards Jesus, who is faithful to do what he said he would do to those who revere and honor his name. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Father, we come to you in a hot room today, and we are clued into the fact that we make this world way too much about ourselves and far too less about you. God, you are bigger than what we could ever imagine. You are present today, tomorrow, and yesterday, all at the same time, Lord. So God, will you create in us a reverence and awe that would become a greater affection for you and what you've done for us that we would want nothing more in life than to follow you, to love you, 
that nothing else on this world would be as appetizing as you are, and that, God, that we would trust in your promise in that as we are desiring and growing in affection to you, Lord, that you would change our heart from one degree to the next because you said you would. And we trust in that today. And we pray this through the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.